0: Welcome, From Alpha to Omega.
1: Hello, and welcome to the 41st episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Saturday, the 9th of November 2013, and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. Due to a teething child and an acute dose of sleep deprivation, this week's show is two weeks late. My apologies. This week, our guest is Dr. Marco Raujé. Marco is a Senior Research Fellow at the Department of Mechanical Engineering and Mathematical Sciences, Oxford Brookes University, and a Senior Researcher with the UNESCO Chair in Life Cycle and Climate Change, of ESCI Pompeo Fabra University in Barcelona. His main research interests are in theoretical improvements of existing approaches for environmental sustainability assessments, their application to energy systems and the development of strategic energy supply scenarios with special focus on photovoltaic technologies. He has also been actively contributing to the theoretical and methodological advancement of energy synthesis, which looks at human dominated processes and systems as part of and ultimately supported by the larger system in which they are embedded, namely the global geobiosphere. You can sometimes find his writings on Ugo Bardi's Cassandra's Legacy blog. We discuss his work on renewable energy, in particular is work on the current state of photovoltaic or PV systems. We learn all about the key differences between energy returned and energy invested and efficiency, bootstrapping fossil fuels to build a renewable future, the reorganization of our current economic system and renewable energies storage problems. Let's join the interview. So Marco, can you explain the concept of E R O E I R as you pronounce it? Uh,
0: I sometimes pronounce it E R O I just to make it more pronounceable. But I'm going to do that from now on as well. Okay, so it's it's um, an acronym for energy return on investment or energy return on energy investment. So it's it's a ratio, basically, of physical unit. If you don't mind, I'll start by um, pointing out what it is not, and then I'll try and, and explain a little bit better what it is. Okay, so. Despite some uh, rather common misconceptions, EROI is not a measure of efficiency or a measure of sustainability or any of that. What it really is, is a metric that is meant to tell you how much net energy, how much benefit in terms of energy availability you can get per unit of energy again invested or spent to obtain that energy in the first place. This might sound a little circular but if you think of it, it's really quite simple. If you have an oil field uh, somewhere, of course you need to invest some energy to go drill a hole, pump the stuff up and, and pipe it down to some refinery. All of that might be referred to as an investment in energy terms. Again, we're not talking about money, but of course there's going to be some money involved as well. But you need actually actually need some energy in order to perform that work. And the amount of energy that you get at the end of the pipeline when you can actually use the stuff that's come out of the ground is your return, is what you actually get out of it. So the ratio of those two numbers would be the eroi of that particular oil. And of course it can change depending on location, depending on how deep you need to drill, and so on and so forth. So that's why there's a range of UROI usually associated to each and every energy source because there's variability. But in principle that's how it's calculated. From a thermodynamic point of view, of course, the overall efficiency of all this uh, practice is lower than 1. It cannot help but be lower than 1 because there's no such thing as perpetual motion, there's no such thing as extracting energy out of nothing. Actually, if you were to include the feedstock energy, so the actual flow of oil that goes through the pipeline, et etc., et cetera, you would find that the overall efficiency of, of this whole chain of processes would be roughly 0.3, which is radically different from the EROI or EROI of electricity production, conventional thermal electricity production, which is often in a range between possibly 10 and 20, depending on the, on the, on the specific feedstock that you use and and, and the specific process. Earlier,
1: you, you, you mentioned to me that EROI, a good way of thinking about it is how much plundering it allows you to do.
0: Talk about that. Yeah, I think that's that's a... Another thought provoking way of looking at it, like, it it basically tells you how good a system or a process is at exploiting whatever is there to be exploited. So, another way of saying it would be it tells you how good you are at plundering the planet. Because the higher your EROI, the better you are at extracting and using a resource per unit of, of effort put into it. So if you, if you have a technology that affords you a ROI of 10, that means that just by investing one unit of energy that you have at hand, which was previously obtained through some other process, you're able to actually strip the Earth of, of 10 units of energy and actually have them at your disposal. So that's another way of looking at it. Which is, of course, why ERO is a relevant metric in in the first place. I'm not trying to say that it isn't. Of course it is, because it tells you how much stuff you can basically do based on a given technology. Because energy is what makes the world go round. ultimately. If you have more energy, you can do more stuff. You can do more work you can you can move stuff you can you can extract more resources you can you can do more stuff basically so energy is what it takes to power any society and so if you have a source of energy uh, and a technology to exploit it that combined give you an EROI of 10 or for the sake of quoting a number then that tells you that you're being very effective not efficient effective at getting that resource out of, uh, of the Earth and using it. So that's a good indication, but it's only half of the picture. It tells you nothing about the sustainability of that pattern of usage. Right? Because if, if, if that energy comes from a finite resource in the ground, then of course the higher the ROI, the better and the, and the quicker, potentially, you can deplete that. So, it's a double-edged sword, really.
1: So, if a source like oil or coal has got a high EROI, it it means that it itself is likely to be depleted very fast, and the effect of its fast depletion is going to be lots of work done in the real world with that energy surplus.
0: Yes, essentially, yes. It's only natural that human beings, like most things in nature, actually, tend to focus on the... High return sources first. Like if you have, if you're if you're an athlete and you and you have the option of eating some salad before a race or eating some sugary uh, carbohydrates, then you would go for the carbohydrates because it would give you a a, a bigger kick, right? They will give you more return in terms of energy per energy invested because the amount of energy that you invest in actually chewing it and swallowing it is per, more or less comparable, but the amount of energy that you get out. You know, so that's a good simile, I think. And yes, of course, we tend, to, we, we we have always tended to focus as a society on those resources that could give us a higher eroi. and that's and that's what enabled us to um, propel our modern societies to the dizzying heights of um, X Factor and American Idol. Yes.
1: Hello, I'm doing a review for. I am's Savory Sauce product. Don't really know how to describe it better than that it's actually a sauce you put on top of a dog's dry food to sort of enhance the flavor for them. This is their pot roast flavor, and this is my dog, Alfie, who uh, is my test subject for all dog food-related videos, and he seems to be enjoying it. This is the first time he's used this product for his dog food before. Sometimes he's a little bit picky with the dog food. He takes a while to eat until he's really hungry, but he seems to be enjoying this flavorful sauce here. Now, you can mix it into the, into the dog food, or you can just pour it on there from what I've read from the bottle. You usually put about a tablespoon of the sauce on every half cup of dog food. So, you've done some work on estimating the EROI for photovoltaic solar panels. I have, yes. What did you find there?
0: Well, we found that for modern systems, recent uh, power plants, the range of, of energy return on energy investment that we found was between six and nine, probably, depending on the specific technology. And when the energy output is taken as the direct electricity production. If instead we wanted to express that same ratio as a ratio of equivalent primary energy production over primary energy investment, then we'd have to multiply that times the amount of primary energy that on average goes into producing one unit of electricity, which in, in today's average electric grid means a factor of three, more or less. So those same euros for photovoltaic electricity would jump up to 18 to 30-something if we were to express them as primary energy out over primary energy investment.
1: So explain those terms now.
0: Well this is something that is quite well recognized and known across the um, uh, you know, s- spectrum of, of analysts and scientists and engineers who deal with this um, uh, on a daily basis. Not all forms of energy are, are completely equivalent. You can't power your computer just by burning some oil. You need to have electricity and converting one form of energy to another form of energy inevitably entails some energy loss, in quotes, uh, some energy converted into heat and dissipated in the environment. Now for the conventional electricity production systems, this amount of energy that is lost as heat is quite large, it's about two-thirds of the original energy contained in the fuel that's used to produce the electricity. So. A conventionally accepted uh, ratio of electricity to primary energy is roughly three, because it takes three units of primary energy to produce one unit of electricity using conventional technologies. So if we go back to PV and other non-conventional electricity production technologies, well, PV provides electricity directly. So if you want to
1: there's no energy loss in conversion.
0: Exactly. Well, there is a little bit because of the inverters and everything, but it's it's minor but, compared yeah. to to this huge loss of the loss. thermal of the thermal conversion. Exactly. So if you have a return in terms of energy output that's directly electricity and you want to compare that to other electricity, then that's that's fine. You're you're comparing apples to apples, and so you can you can say that the EROI of PV is seven and the EROI of electricity produced by some other in some other way is X. And you can compare those two. But if you want to compare the return, the energy return on investment of a technology that is intrinsically producing electricity directly to for example the EROI of a fuel like oil which is not yet electricity and which would need to be converted into electricity at a huge loss then it's reasonable to set the level playing field by speaking in terms of equivalent primary energy thereby multiplying the electricity output times three
1: so if oil, normal EROI on of oil is for example, 20 to 1, Yeah. that when you convert it into electricity, you get 7 to 1. Exactly. And that 7 to 1 should be what you compare with, say, a photovoltaic of 6 to 9.
0: Yes, that was, that, that, that's what I was getting at,
1: yes. What What is the average EROI currently for oil or the major types of oil?
0: Um, it depends on whether, uh, you know, what what kind of oil. Um, so, for, for domestic oil in many countries like the United States, countries that have a history of, of oil production, but which are now rapidly depleting their stocks, the current EROI of those would be probably between 10 and 15 or something like that. Whereas... On the whole, it's still a little higher because there are countries that are farther from depletion from depleting their their stocks and so the the oil of those oil fields is still higher like twenty or thirty or so so it, it it does vary and when I say that depletion um and that is because on average. As you deplete a stock, you need to put more effort into extracting what is left. Because you either have to dig deeper or you have to put, put more apply more pressure for the oil to come out. And so return is the same, but the investment goes up and so the ratio goes down.
1: So if we have oil-fired electricity, electricity plants, they seem to be working on quite a similar EROI to what we would expect to come from photovoltaics currently
0: um, i yeah i would argue that yes uh from oil yes from coal uh no it's coal is has got a higher roi uh, on it average it? probably 40 something or 50 even depending on 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 again on the specific location and so you know if you if you can still reasonably assume a 30% conversion efficiency 30 to 35 perhaps Roughly speaking, you get an EROI of 12, 15 or something for coal-fired electricity, which is higher than what you would get out of uh, PV or other renewables.
1: What is the current efficiency of energy conversion for PV?
0: Let's take one step back and let's try and be clear about this. Now, when we talk about conversion efficiency, in our minds we tend to think of what flows in and what flows out. And we take the ratio of those two. So for a thermal power plant, it's quite straightforward. You have one unit of fuel going in, such as oil or coal or natural gas, and you have, roughly speaking, again, 0.3 units of electricity coming out. So the conversion efficiency there is about 30%, could be even 40 in some cases, 30, 35. The rest is lost as heat, dispersed into the environment as heat. Okay. Then you could try and recover some of that with cogeneration plants, but overall, that's, that's a ballpark figure that is, is correct. Now, for renewable technologies, and specifically for photovoltaics, there are two stages to consider. First is capture efficiency. Like there's, on a square meter of land or of, or of uh, PV panel, there's a given amount of light that shines on it, and only a fraction of that light can be captured by the semiconducting device that then translates it into electricity. And the capture efficiency isn't all that high. It's between 10 and 14. The fact with PVE and other renewables, though, is that we're not too concerned about the capture efficiency because there is a constant inflow of renewable, as it happens, energy, that is never going to be depleted. So what we focus on is the conversion efficiency, which is the next step between whatever is captured by the device to what is output in terms of electricity. And there are other intermediate processes that that need to happen before the energy that's captured can be output as electricity. Namely, there are cables, there are inverters to make a, a low-voltage direct current into an alternated current, and then there are step-up transformers and all that. So, overall, you get an 80% efficiency, more or less, Okay, starting from the captured energy.
1: So you catch 10%, say, for example, and that ends up being 8%.
0: Correct. But we usually refer to the efficiency of PV being 80% because we forget about the initial, first, the initial capture.
1: What is the projected thinking behind how those two factors will become more efficient? So what could the 10 to 14% come with investment and also the 80%? That can't go too much higher, but... it,
0: it I mean, the, the the first factor, the uh, capture efficiency can, can improve. It has improved over the years uh, and it... Will likely keep improving. In lab conditions, in laboratory conditions, efficiency of 20, 25%, 26%, I think, have been achieved. Uh, The problem with achieving the same in large scale products is that you have imperfections, and so you you would have a, a large reject, you know, if you were to specify your product to such high standards. So, in order to accept for the variability of the materials and the non-perfect nature of, yeah, yeah. of, of your products, the average guaranteed efficiency is, is considerably lower. And this is creeping up and it will keep going up. It's hard to say, but it's reasonable to assume that a few percentage points will be um, gained in the next five to ten years. So, it's it's. Reasonable to assume that we could have fifteen percent or so PV in the in the near future, and even more than that, we could get to twenty percent. Perhaps I wouldn't venture to say much more than that, but are there physical boundaries to? There are, there are physical limits? boundaries. Those depend on the technology. Uh, the physical boundaries are are a bit higher, but there is no reason to believe that they will ever be actually reached. Those are boundaries. Then there's the real life, which yeah. is lower, yeah. But again, one thing that is going to change, that has changed, and that is going to change, probably more rapidly than just the capture efficiency, is the amount of energy that's required to produce the device that affords you that efficiency, which is the other side of the coin, and it it has the same result. Because if you can produce a 13% module using half the energy, for all intents and purposes, so that's almost like saying that's twice the efficiency. Just thinking of what you said there, this could
1: mean that we, we might see EROIs in the reasonable future of, could we say, you know, maybe 10 to 15 for for PV. We
0: could, yeah.
1: That's in terms of electricity like output. Like a 10-year, 20-year yes. target or something like we could, that. We possibly, yeah. possibly, achievable. Possibly achievable, which is as good as, if we look from the energy point of view direct electricity point of view is equivalent from maybe some of the good types of coal that they get out? It is.
0: Again, reality is more complex than a simple metric or a simple number might have us believe. So that is true. At the same time, there are many fundamental categorical differences between conventional and renewable electricity generation. I'll just mention a few just to Make the picture a little more complex and and perhaps more realistic. So yes, focusing on EROI, it's conceivable that that the two families of technologies might may end up having you know roughly the same EROI, but there are uh, fundamental differences in terms of renewable versus non-renewable because. Fossil-fuel-based technologies attain those Euros, as I was saying at the beginning, by basically plundering the planet for a finite stock of resources that are dwindling and that, and that can, cannot help but go down in quantity over the next um, uh, decades, even faster and faster as the population grows and, and, and demand for energy grows. Whereas... Renewable technologies achieve similar EROIs by exploiting a constant inflow of energy from the sun, essentially. Even wind power is an indirect way of exploiting the sun, because it's the sun and the warmth of the sun that that ultimately generates wind currents and, and air circulation. So, renewables, as I was saying, allow the same or similar. Eroi exploiting a renewable resource, which is fundamentally different because we're not going to run out of that. And and that isn't going to cause issues in terms of depletion for the future generation. Another point related is the fact that renewables of course are more benign in terms of carbon emissions, which is another big issue today in terms of anthropogenic contribution to global warming and all of the and all that comes with it in terms of uncertainty and in terms of potential perils uh, you know in the future climate. So that's another fact that plays, if you will, in favour of renewables and which shows that the two are not simply comparable in terms of EROI. And the third issue, which sort of partly counterbalances this view in favor of renewables because it's actually against renewables is that renewables are non-dispatchable. And by by that word we mean that it isn't possible to simply ramp them up or down or turn them up or down at will because the pattern of renewable energy availability and, and therefore production is essentially dependent on sunshine or the availability and intensity of wind streams and and so on. And so there needs to be an effort in reorganizing part of this societal demand for energy around those patterns to the extent that that is possible. And to the extent that it isn't possible, those technologies need to be complemented by either some backup so some more traditional technologies that can be turned on and off at will to compensate for the fluctuation in renewables, or some energy storage systems that are able to capture the surplus generating during times of peak production and release that during times of demand when production is low to non-existent. All of this is going to eat into the eROI of renewables. So it's a circle really. There are some some aspects that point to a rosy future where uh, the eROI of renewables is going to keep growing because it is going to keep growing for because of technological improvement and so on and so forth. But there are some shadows also in terms of the requirement for more storage and backup as renewables become so, more and
1: more commonplace yeah so the more that we use renewables the more impact that we're going to have to spend on the fact that we're using more of them yes yeah, you know, because we want to run a, a factory and now all of a sudden there's it's it's cloudy and there's no wind and we don't have the energy to power Correct. the machines so yeah. we need to invest in some other stuff and that's going to hit the efficiency of all of
0: these things yes well the efficiency and the ROI yes, yes. Let me tell you something. This is what I always say, right? What goes up
1: must come down On the roundabout that you must go round oh, That's right, mate. That's if right. If you're a cat, then get hold the dog pound If you're in the dance, then dance to the sound. I'll oh, just pull over, mate. I'll jump out here. What, here? Keep the change, eh? Alright, thank you, mate. Now, take it easy, eh? Yeah, fight, fight. Oh. Oh dear. Well, that's
0: charming No problem.
1: She said in a recent article that the interdependence of renewable and fossil fuels is not symmetrical. Mm-hmm. What, what
0: do you mean by this? I mean that today, a large fraction of the investment, and I'm always talking about physical units, so the energy investment, the energy that's required to set up. A photovoltaic system, as well as any other energy-producing device, is of fossil origin. So renewables, such as PV and wind and others, are intrinsically dependent on a supply of energy, most of which is non-renewable energy, in order to happen, in order to be possible, to be established. So that's a dependency of renewables on non-renewables. Whereas, it doesn't work like that the other way around, because non-renewables basically bootstrapped by non-renewables, and so they're more sort of self-sufficient as a technology.
1: So, for example, if we use oil or coal to generate, to build a whole load of solar panels, that the solar panels can be used as a feedstock to create new energy for new solar panels.
0: Yes, in the second or third generation that would work like that, yes. Yes. While it is true that currently, nowadays, renewable energy technologies are ultimately underpinned by fossil energy just like fossil energy technologies themselves, that doesn't take away the fact that if we follow a unit of of that fossil energy along its path, If it's invested in a fossil energy technology, such as a a coal-fired power plant, that one unit will result in the extraction and processing and burning of X units of fuel, which will then produce only a third of the energy of the feedstock, so X divided by 3. Whereas, if we invest that in PV, quantitatively, we get 6 to 9 times the electricity in output as the amount that is invested. So if you take a ratio of that 6 to 9 over 0.3, you get roughly a factor of 20 in favor of PV. And that's not to say that the of PV is higher, but that the overall efficiency of electricity production by pv is 20 times higher than the overall electricity production efficiency by conventional power plants
1: so we we spend one barrel of oil and we get six barrels of photovoltaic energy out and essentially
0: whereas if we invest that barrel, barrel if we use that barrel of oil we get a third of a barrel of electricity exactly. out exactly and
1: those six barrels of New PV electricity, yeah. we can create up to six barrels for each one of them.
0: Well, there that, is some multiplicative effect. It's not yeah. quite as linear as that. Because, yeah, but but, but, but you, you could look at it
1: as you know there'll be some. You could imagine if if you built a a factory of photovoltaics right beside your yeah. massive photovoltaic farms, and you could be feeding and growing this photovoltaic farm in some in some measure feeding itself? And
0: yes, well, in, yes, yes, I agree, yes, that, that's that's the idea, yes. Of course, there are caveats in terms of the uh, fact that all of these renewable technologies, and PV is not alone, they are relatively dilute. It's very hard to concentrate a large amount of installed power in a small area. It's impossible, actually, to do so, because renewable energy sources are inexhaustible, but they are flow-limited. There's only... Uh, a limited number of photons, a limited amount of light that is ever going to shine on a square meter of land. And you can't energy, more sun energy, through that square meter than the sun is willing to give you. So the only way to ramp up PV is to occupy more land. And there are limits to how much we can do of that. So that multiplicative effect isn't going to take us really, really far, because we would need, you know... A... The Earth. Yes. Are there, are there issues around
1: how we measure this photovoltaic return on energy invested when we get to try and include a broader look at the system?
0: There are potential issues, because whereas for more conventional technologies, all of the related infrastructure that supports them and makes them happen has by and large already been developed and is actually already available and the energy investment that was required to set it up has already been amortized and when i say amortized what i mean is that that investment is actually diluted and allocated over such a large number of energy units produced by that technology that it becomes almost irrelevant so this is this is conventional
1: yeah so when they first started building oil-fired plants say for example they had to do a lot of research and development and the energy that they put into building this new technology when it got out and building their electrical wires and everything that they didn't get really any much energy out but once that's built the first time and then you start using it again and again and again yes the energy return that you get is Good, and also that you get better at building these things. Yes. So the initial input that you have to put into building your first plant, in essence, it's negligible negligible because you spread it over all the electricity you're going to get in the next 50 years or something.
0: Exactly, exactly. Now, for PV, something similar is bound to happen if, you know, if economies of scale are put to work and and if, if we develop more and more PV, because some of the restructuring even of the grid, of the electricity distribution grid, that may be necessary at some point if PV becomes a major player in the grid, in terms of more decentralization, a different distribution network, and some of the infrastructure, such as even you know, roads and electricity lines and clearings to set up the PV plants and PV farms and so on and so forth. You know, the the benefits of those investments will be reaped over a, a much longer time frame, and so the amount of investment per unit of electricity produced will become much lower and lower as the time goes by. Now, there is, though, a difference in the time frame with which... Fossil technologies were able to recoup those investments and the time frame that is likely to apply to PV. Because, as I said before, fossil energy is basically there for the taking, as long as it's, as it's not depleted. So, once you've built your infrastructure, you can start pumping out of the ground as fast as you can to recoup those investments in the shortest possible amount of time. Whereas, with PV, you are basically flow-limited, and the, the pace at which you can produce electricity is set by the sun, and there's nothing you can do about it, except for, for building more PV, but that requires more investment, so it's a bit of a cash-22. So, it won't be quite as rapid as the amortization of the investment for the fuel sector, but I think that there will be some uh amortization nonetheless if, if you got to a
1: static state economic system somehow you could imagine that if you had a no growth economy that these centers of renewable electrical mm-hmm. generation their investment could be spent and the reward could be reaped over many hundreds of years yes well Potentially. many
0: tens of years and then then you would need some maintenance but still but yes but still Yes, the idea is there, yes, yes. And we should always keep in mind that that factor of 20 or 15, if you want, I mean, let's not get too hung up on the specific numbers, but the idea is that there's an order of magnitude more energy that can be reaped per unit of investment in renewables than there is in fossils if you include the depletion of the stock. So if you don't calculate it as an Neroi, but as a life cycle, energy efficiency so to speak. I read
1: an article somewhere going off topic somewhat Mm -hmm. and it was talking about how it might be a good idea to change the structure the electricity infrastructure from AC to DC because of renewable energy comes in as DC. Yes
0: the problem with DC is Losses over long distance transmission, which can be mitigated in some ways. There are high voltage DC lines. Um, for so, if, it's, it, if it's, it's largely decentralized, decentralization is going to play a role or, or should play a role in adapting you know, the pattern of energy distribution, production, and consumption in a way that's more suitable for renewables. Absolutely, yes. yes. I wonder,
1: is there any market developing for such appliances, say somewhere like Germany, where there's lots of PV in people's houses for for DC appliances? Not that
0: I know of, because it's probably still too early. It requires, again, investments, it requires different separate distribution network so not that i'm aware of but in the long term yes there might be another you know we, we need to if we want to reduce our dependency on fossils and we want to become overall more efficient at using energy and we want to s- slow down the depletion of the limited amount of fossil energy that we still have and reduce the uh, contribution to global warming as we do so, we need to start thinking more out of the box and not just look for plug-and-play solutions that can enable us to um, carry on with business as usual in in all of what we do just by flicking a switch and going from using oil to using PV, because that is not going to happen. Because the two ways of producing electricity are so fundamentally different in many ways, that one is not and will never be a a substitute, a plug-in substitute for the other. There needs to be some profound rethinking and restructuring of the way we do stuff.
1: Implications for photovoltaics and renewables in general would there be if, as we expand the boundary for how we measure the return on the energy invested, that it drops perilously low? What, what what does that mean for our society if that if that happens to be the case?
0: To some extent, uh, that is obviously the case, and it raises uh, you know calculating an extended boundary, eroi of any technologies is tricky, which doesn't mean that it shouldn't be done, but that it requires a lot of care in trying to be consistent across different technologies, so that we expand the boundaries in a similar way, and we don't end up including extraneous inputs for one particular technology just because we could think of some, whereas we didn't put quite enough effort in thinking of other extraneous inputs for other competing technologies, and we end up skewing the results very much. Now, I'll make some examples to make it easier to understand. It is common practice in in a discipline known as a life cycle assessment, which is a, a close relative of net energy analysis and, and energy analysis and energy assessment, which looks at basically the environmental impacts of a production process or even a sector to complement those inputs which we can quantify in terms of their direct physical units with estimates of those inputs which are harder to quantify in, in physical units based on the monetary expenditure to provide those extra inputs. Some of those may be, for example, insurance, which is a requirement for some of those technologies. Some of those may be even the salaries that are required for the people working in a sector. And instead of quantifying exactly what's the energy consumption of an employee in their daily lives, you just take their salary as a proxy for their contribution to the energy budget of society. Which is fine. There are methodological guidelines as to how to do that, and and the the discipline is termed hybrid input-output analysis. Hybrid because it's partly economic and partly energy or or physical, and input-output because it's based on input-output tables of different economic sectors. The problem with that is that it's absolutely essential to include all that needs to be included without going overboard and including something that isn't really strictly related to the technology, but is just coincidental to the specific conditions in which that particular technology was deployed in a specific instance in a given country. And an example of that is if a country sets up some very strict limits to, for example, feed-in tariffs for photovoltaics or some other sort of tax. Which changes the operational efficiency of exactly Exactly. That, that particular uh, law requirement may end up conditioning and limiting the efficiency with which a given technology can be deployed in that particular country. And that should not be taken, in my view as an intrinsic property of the technology but it's more like a coincidental condition that caused a particular inefficiency in a given situation in time and in history so that is something that should not be included even in an extended eROI analysis or an extended energy analysis of a technology so say for example a
1: government said all solar panels had to be on the roofs of of houses yeah and example. that is maybe only half as efficient as having them in large arrays in a field. Yes. And to measure the efficiency of the solar panels, say, on houses, you'd say, oh, it's not that good because maybe there are some exactly. extra overheads. So you need to look at the intrinsic nature of the technology yes. as opposed to its institutional setting.
0: Exactly, exactly. Yeah. It's essentially, yes. That's, that's, that's one thing, yes. And Another thing is to be not only consistent but be complete in including not only the additional costs but also the additional benefits of a technology in terms of avoiding other costs as it replaces a different technology. So that's that's all quite complex and sometimes difficult to define but my point is that we either stick to the physical units and perform a
1: Narrow physical Narrow
0: physical analysis, exactly, of a technology and compare that to another technology. And in doing so, we keep the playing field level. Or if we want to get adventurous and extend the boundaries and perform a hybrid analysis, then we need to be extremely careful to do so in a consistent fashion and not to inadvertently skew the analysis by including some extra inputs that we thought were relevant for a given technology but not doing the same for another technology and then maybe we don't do it ourselves but some of our readers extrapolate our numerical results and compare across different analyses where this comparison no longer holds. It's apples and oranges and sadly this seems to be happening all the time in the literature because people are all too eager to just forget about the details Just read the last number in the last table, take that out of context and just say, this is 2, this is 10. What are the main benefits then that you would see of, say, PV? What would be the
1: cost savings that they might make in another area?
0: Well, first and foremost, renewable technologies such as PV are very low in carbon emissions per kilowatt hour of electricity generated. And even though it's very hard verging on the impossible to actually physically quantify the economic benefit of reduced carbon emissions because um, we might set up a carbon price and a carbon market but that's very very imprecise and uh, and and it's and it's subjective and it's and it can fluctuate a lot based on the whim of politicians and so on and so forth but there is an, is an undeniable benefit in reducing the amount of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere as they have been proven to contribute to a potentially unstable climate in the future which is a a real hazard for the for the world. So that's that's a clear benefit right there and then which has all sorts of indirect economic effects. It, again, it's very hard to quantify that there, there's an ongoing effort by many research groups and many initiatives worldwide to quantify the economic effects of global warming but a reduction of, of greenhouse gas emissions is obviously a benefit in that sense. Then there are other indirect benefits like reduced local pollution, reduced illnesses related to um, breathing uh, diseases, you know, particulate matter emitted by coal power plants, for example, not so much um, uh, in this country perhaps, but in China. Um, the, there are quite a lot of indirect benefits that are not obviously directly... Uh, taken into account by a simple energy calculation so
1: one of the things we touched on earlier was the unreliability of energy coming from renewable sources it's not as easily programmable as Mm -hmm. large scale coal oil gas fired nuclear plants are there any potentially usable looking technologies for storage of power barring maybe damming or something like that there
0: are well pumped hydro is is one of the most readily available and most affordable but it's obviously not applicable everywhere you need to have a reservoir you need to have a a potential energy difference between some some high altitude reservoir and a downflowing uh, river so that's not ubiquitous and a lot of hydropower is already Built out to its maximum extent in many parts of the world. So that's that's one. Then another technology which still looks promising and it it, it is being developed, but to best of my knowledge, not on a commercial scale yet anywhere in the world, is that of compressed air storage. How does that work? It works basically by simplifying a little bit. Is is to using the surplus and en- electricity that's produced during peak production. To basically run a compressor and compress air in some underground deposits or some naturally occurring caverns, and to keep it there, or exhausted uh, gas fields or, or even oil wells, and keep it there until power needs to be released. Just by letting the air expand again, you can get some energy out of like that. Like a coiled spring. Yes essentially essentially it does work it, it has been proven to work it it isn't particularly energy intensive to operate so which mean which is important because of course you want an energy storage option that doesn't eat into the energy returns too much but then again there might be issues as to geographic you know availability of suitable underground sites where to store the pumped compressed air. And at these underground caverns they would actually be airtight? Yeah some of them are or sufficiently so I mean even if there's some loss it's still you know factored in in the in the overall uh, uh, cycle efficiency of compressing and 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 covering. What's the the efficiency
1: of that compression then?
0: I forget now exactly so I wouldn't be able to, um, to but it's high it's high enough to make it actually a viable alternative it's not some you know some some something that only works in principle it has been proven to actually work in in real life uh, to an extent that the overall efficiency of electricity production takes a hit but not such a, a hit that uh, makes it completely you know irrelevant anymore it's, it probably loses like maybe 30 40 50% what's the level of
1: investment or capital investment in the research in storage, it seems to me that that's a real critical... It's a niche yeah.
0: <laughs> still. It, it's still a niche. Yeah, I mean, there is research going on. There, there, there were actually two pretty large conferences and conventions in the United States specifically on storage recently, so it's catching up, but it's still relatively minor comparing to electricity production and the production of, of renewable energy. That's probably because it is largely felt that this is a problem that has yet to materialize. It's, it's a forty-year problem, exactly. Something. It's something that will come to the fore when renewable electricity is a major player. Now it's you know today is still such a, a minor contributor to the to the overall makes that there's still time but i would argue that it's it's necessary to start well we have started but to invest more in that branch of research as well
1: what's the biggest challenge then that you think overall that renewables
0: face well that's a million dollar question the biggest challenge well there are a number of challenges i think one challenge i'll be perhaps a little provocative here is to go against the misconception the, I sometimes refer to it as the um, rose-tinted glasses misconception, that renewables are the next best thing that will enable us someday, probably even soon, some believe, to do away with fossil fuels and keep using as much energy as we want in a business-usual way just by switching from tried and, and, and through technologies such as uh, conventional um, fossil fuel-based technologies to renewables. Like, renewables are not a, a silver bullet. are not like a magical wand that will enable us someday to keep everything else equal and just change the source of energy that we, that we exploit. Because they're fundamentally different. They are inexhaustible, but they're flow-limited, again. They're more dilute. So they will require major efforts in terms of improving the efficiency with which we use electricity downstream, adapting and matching the production pattern to the demand pattern way better than, than, than we do today. Today we're basically using electricity and energy without putting too much attention to how it is produced and when it is produced. Because we're used to thinking of the two sides, production and consumption, as basically independent time-wise. They only have to match in terms of quantity, but not in terms of pattern. Now, with renewables, that is going to change. So that's a big challenge, being able to meet that and to restructure all of our patterns of consumption. Then storage, of course, is is an issue and is something that will require some careful consideration and investment. Even if perhaps not to the extent that Every megajoule of electricity needs to have a backup or a storage. You know, there might, it might be that only about a third or a fourth of the electricity needs to be stored, or maybe even less than that, because we can better match the, the the patterns of production and consumption, and so on and so forth. And then, of course, cost. Cost is is another big one, and learning curves have shown that the cost of renewable electricity generation has gone down, and it will go down, and... Uh, in tandem to that, the cost of conventional electricity production is probably uh, bound to keep going up. So that there will be a crossing over point at some, at some point in the near future. And for some parts of the world, it's interesting to mention that, for example, for the southwest of the United States, in, in some locations that are blessed with, with a lot of sunshine, some modern PV systems are already at the point of, of grid parity with, with conventional uh, electricity so that's not too far in the future Well,
1: thanks very much for no Marco nice. for coming on the show today
0: Thank you, thank you for having me Thanks
1: On this episode you heard the theme tune the Order of the Pharaonic Jesters by Sunra and his orchestra and the wonders of dog food saws, accompanied by Django Reinhardt and Stefan Grappelli's Minor Swing. You also heard North of Ping reminding us what goes up must come down, Santana telling us we've got to change our evil ways and you are now listening to the Bateau Yves rework of Angola. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega.
0: i <laughs> my